Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hello and welcome to episode three in our series on emergency general surgery. I'm Graham Skelhorn-Gross and I'm here with Dr. Ashley Nadler and Dr. Jordan Nana. Hi. Hello. We are excited to talk to you today about emergency general surgery as it pertains to patients over the age of 65. This subpopulation accounts for 40% of emergency general surgery admissions today, a proportion that we expect to increase with our aging population. Now, we all know patients over 65 are a high-risk group. Many have decreased reserve, poor nutritional status, and chronic medical conditions, which affect their ability to handle the stress of their presenting condition, not to mention their operation. Also, as we've discussed before, in emergency general surgery, we often don't have the ability to prehabilitate our patients since we need to intervene right away. Altogether, this makes taking care of emergency general surgery patients over 65 a risky business and requires us to use a careful and thoughtful approach. There is a lot of literature focusing on this population, and we want to discuss two important articles that relate to how older patients are cared for in emergency general surgery. But there are a few important definitions to discuss before we begin. The way we address adults over the age of 65 varies. My father is 70, and I can tell you he would not appreciate being called elderly or geriatric, even though many studies and protocols use these terms. We'll be using adults over 65, seniors or older adults throw the podcast out of respect, unless we see that these are terms, other terms are specifically used by the papers that we're discussing. But we do recognize that age alone is often not a great cutoff to use, and frailty, while less often assessed, is often much more important for assessment and prognostication. Yeah, frailty has been shown to correlate with various post-op outcomes, uh, but its assessment often relies on gestalt. Uh, or how a patient appears rather than a standardized assessment. There are many frailty scores that can be used, which also complicates standardizing the documentation and assessment of frailty. Some frailty scores involve many components and questions beyond the typical clinical assessment, which makes them difficult to implement routinely in the acute care surgery and emergency general surgery population. There's one study that we'd like to turn your attention to, and that's by Engelhardt and colleagues. It's in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery, published in 2018. Uh, they use a very practical frailty score called the Emergency General Surgery Specific Frailty Index, and it seems quite easy to use. It includes five sections about comorbidities, daily activities, health attitude, function, and nutrition. And, and these are really all questions we ask anyways when doing emergency consultations. So we think this would be great to use in our patient population. Thanks, Graham. That's a great tool that we can use in emergency general surgery. There are many others. So really what's important is finding one that could be done reliably in a timely manner during assessment of older patients to make sure that we take frailty into account when it comes to planning, decision-making, and prognostication. The other issue that's often not addressed in studies uh, on patients over 65 is looking at patient-centered outcomes. So most, most studies rely on common outcomes such as length of stay, morbidity, mortality, uh, but they fail to take into account place of discharge and the quality of life of the actual patient. We'll talk about this a little bit more in one of the papers we discussed today. Okay, great. So now that we've got some definitions to go by, let's get into the studies themselves. We'll be talking about two studies in detail today. The first is called Emergency General Surgery in Geriatric Patients, a Statewide Analysis of Surgeon and Hospital Volumes, 
with outcomes. It's by Meta et al. And then the second is called Alive and at Home, Five-Year Outcomes in Older Adults Following Emergency General Surgery. This is by Gutman et al. Great. Let's start with the paper by Meta et al. examining surgeon and hospital volumes in geriatric emergency general surgery patients. Absolutely. So I thought this paper was particularly interesting in that it lets us examine some of the factors that constitute what expertise is in the treatment of this population. Now, this is also a retrospective population-based cross-sectional study, which used administrative data. Uh, They wanted to look at the association between surgeon and hospital annual experience with outcomes in what they refer to as geriatric patients with EGS conditions. They used a database in Maryland that allowed them to capture surgeries and admissions across the state from July 2012 to, to September 2014. Interestingly, they were able to link this to surgeon and hospital level data so that they could look at the relationship between these factors and patient outcomes. They kept the conditions included quite broad to encompass the majority of key emergency general surgery conditions that we see. They include appendectomy, cholecystectomy, colon and small bowel resections, lysis of adhesions, surgical treatment of peptic ulcer disease, abdominal hernia repair, and surgical treatment of skin, soft tissue, and perirectal lesions. Um, As for which patients they actually included, patients had to be 65 or over, having one of these procedures in an urgent or emergent fashion. Since there's not really an established value for what constitutes a low or high uh, volume surgeon or hospital, they use the median uh, for the number of geriatric emergency general surgery procedures per year in each category. This ended up being eight procedures for a uh, surgeon uh, and 82 procedures for an institution. Uh, This included only patients, of course, who underwent surgery and excluded those who were admitted for non-operative management. The primary outcome that they looked at was in-hospital mortality, but they also examined several relevant complications, including failure to rescue, which they defined as a complication followed by a death, and 30-day readmission. Now let's get to the interesting part, the results. They examined over 3,800 patients, about half of whom were 65 to 74 years old, and the rest were older. The majority, 83%, had two or more comorbidities. Nearly all hospitals were in an urban center, half were teaching institutions, and they were broken up into 22 each of low and high volume, what they term geriatric emergency general surgery centers. There were 161 low volume surgeons and 141 high volume surgeons included. As for the procedures themselves, more than a quarter were cholecystectomies, and there were very few perirectal procedures. The rate of mortality overall was just under 5%, and complications occurred in about a quarter of people, which is fairly well in keeping with known outcomes in higher-risk patients undergoing emergency general surgery procedures. Patients having an exploratory laparotomy at the highest mortality at 24% and complication rate at 59%. Uh, They have a great table breaking down mortality by procedure, which may help provide patients with more information in their decision-making if you get a chance to look at the actual article. Now, interestingly, there was a fair amount of overlap between surgeon volume and hospital volume. About one-third of high-volume surgeons actually operate at low-volume institutions, and nearly three-quarters of low-volume surgeons operate at high-volume institutions. So this suggests that these attributes are actually fairly independent of each other. That's pretty interesting. Um, Now that we have a good idea of what the cohorts look like, let's examine their core findings. They found that patients operated on by a low-volume surgeon had about twice the odds of mortality and 1.7 time the odds of failure to rescue. They didn't see the same relationship with complications or readmissions though, and there wasn't any association seen for hospital volume. 
So it seems that this was a surgeon volume driven phenomenon. See, I thought that was a really striking and interesting finding. Um, as I would have expected there to be some relationship with hospital volume too. Um, of note, they looked at several different additional analyses, uh, including specifically examining the highest risk conditions uh, and the relationships that we mentioned stays, uh, stayed the same. Looking at individual complications, the only appreciable difference between low and high volume surgeons was with post-operative hemorrhage. So this certainly could be a factor in these outcome differences that we're seeing. Okay, great. So that was an awesome run through of the results. Why don't we sum up the strengths? Uh, this is a big, well done observational study looking at a number of hospitals. They included a broad spectrum of emergency general surgery conditions, and I think these are quite representative of the specialty. And they looked at well defined and important short term outcomes. Absolutely, Graham. But that leaves me to be the downer and talk about the drawbacks. The data is retrospective and observational. So it relies on statistical analysis to account for group differences that may not eliminate bias. And because they largely ran on administrative data, there could be misclassification bias from inaccurately identifying procedures or outcomes. Also, no previously established definitions of low or high volume exist, and it required them to use medians as a surrogate for this. Finally, it looks primarily at short-term clinical outcomes and they aren't able to evaluate longer-term or patient-centered outcomes. That's a great summary. Thank you both. So overall, I think the takeaways are um, that older patients undergoing emergency general surgery have nearly twice the mortality uh, with low-volume surgeons and also have a higher rate of failure to rescue. Uh, these same differences aren't seen with differences or with uh, different hospital volumes. Uh, so it really focuses on this being an issue of surgeon and team expertise. Uh, this has important implications, of course, about how we look after this high-risk group uh, and who carries out these operations. It raises questions about whether or not these patients would benefit from preferentially being treated by high-volume surgeons whenever possible, even if this doesn't necessarily mean being treated at a different hospital. All right, so let's take a look at our next paper, which is Alive and at Home, Five-Year Outcomes in Older Adults Following Emergency General Surgery. Yes, this is a large-scale population-based retrospective cohort study, and it uh, looks at the long-term outcomes of older adults with admissions for emergency general surgery diagnoses. The lead author is Dr. Matthew Gutman, a general surgery resident from the University of Toronto, and the corresponding author is trauma surgeon and intensivist Dr. Barbara Haas. So I really like this study, and I'm proud to say that the senior investigator, Dr. Haas, is amazing, and she's one of my surgical partners. But we will do our best to appraise the study critically despite this. There are a number of emergency general surgery papers looking at older adults, but they tend to focus on short-term outcomes, as we just saw, such as mortality. Now, of course, mortality is an important issue, and the in-hospital mortality for emergency general surgery in older patients is approximately 7 to 12%, and the one-year mortality is around 30 to 38%, so quite, con quite uh, concerning. However, many of the older patients I look after place tremendous value on quality of life, and some even refuse potentially life-saving treatment if it looks likely that it will leave them with a poor functional outcome. I completely agree. And that's very much in keeping with what I've seen with my patients as well, Ashley. And this study's primary outcome of interest is aging in place or being able to reside in one's home for as long as possible. I think that's a great primary outcome for us to evaluate. Yeah, it sure is. It's very patient-centered, which I think is excellent. Uh, as far as the study design, uh, it's a large population-based retrospective cohort study, as you noted, uh, that they captured community-dwelling patients, so not those already in or awaiting placement in a nursing home in Ontario between 2006 and 2018. This included over 90,000 patients, 
uh, which is all of the uh, emergency general surgery admissions in the province during that time period, which is pretty incredible. And they followed these patients for five years, so relatively long-term. Graham, why don't you tell us about the inclusion and exclusion criteria? Sure thing. Um, so they included patients over 65 that were admitted with one of eight diagnoses, those being appendicitis, cholecystitis, diverticulitis, bowel obstruction, including uh, those associated with hernias, peptic ulcer disease, intestinal ischemia, and perforated viscous. And once again, these are the classic emergency general surgery uh, diagnoses that we see a lot of, but particularly these are the ones that are primarily managed by general surgeons, as opposed to those diseases like gallstone pancreatitis or cholecystitis that we manage in conjunction with our gastroenterology colleagues. And they excluded admissions without any preceding emergency department record to ensure that they were only capturing patients who were presenting acutely. The database they used allowed them to capture baseline characteristics on the study patients, such as age, gender, where they lived, so rural versus an urban setting, neighborhood income quintile as a measure of socioeconomic status and frailty. They were then matched one-to-one with members of the population of Ontario. So really anyone who was not admitted during the time period of the patients who had the emergency general surgery diagnosis. Right. And again, their primary outcome was time spent alive and at home in the five years following admission for an emergency general surgery condition. They did look at secondary outcomes as well, including length of stay, ICU stay, ventilator days, and mortality. Another thing they did was to stratify their population into three categories. Those with a low-risk diagnosis, which they included Appy and Coley, uh, intermediate risk, diverticulitis, hernia with obstruction or bowel obstruction, and high risk, peptic ulcer disease, intestinal ischemia, and perforated viscous, uh, based on presumed clinical risk and mortality. Finally, they reported subgroup analyses, first of patients who underwent surgery only, and then of those who had baseline frailty. All right, so let's look at what they found. The most common diagnoses were bowel obstructions, diverticulitis, and cholecystitis. A total of 41% of patients underwent at least one operation, 14% required ICU, and 9% required it for ventilation. As far as mortality went, the mean survival in the study population was 46 months compared to 52 months in the control population. The average amount of time alive and at home was 43 months in the study population and 50 months in the control population. So simply being admitted for an emergency general surgery diagnosis reduces your survival and time in your home by about seven months. So that's for all comers. But interestingly, for patients with low-risk diagnoses, so that was appendicitis and cholecystitis, there were very little differences in time spent alive and at home in cases versus controls. The greatest difference was seen, as you might expect, in the patients with the highest-risk diagnoses, such as peptic ulcer disease, intestinal ischemia, and perforated viscous. So this information is really valuable when counseling elderly patients with a low-risk diagnosis. Yes, this is a problem that needs admission and intervention, but it shouldn't have a huge impact on your quality and quantity of life long-term, depending on the presentation that they have. For sure. Another thing I found interesting is that in their entire study population, 57% of patients were alive and in their home five years later. I think this is so key to remember when we're looking at a sick older adult in the emergency department, and it's, it's frankly hard to imagine that there could be a good outcome. But actually, when you look at all comers, most of these patients are going to make it back to their home. That's true, Graham, but it's important to remember, of course, these patients are still at high risk. The authors showed that that risk is especially significant early on. There's a five-fold increased risk of deaths or nursing home admission in the first three months post-admission. That risk decreases after this point, but it still remains elevated for the entirety of the five-year period, and that holds true in all subgroups. 
In the low-risk group, appendicitis and cholecystitis, death and nursing home admission risk is briefly elevated, but actually returns to baseline after six months. So I think there are several really useful takeaways from this study that are helpful for us when we are providing prognostic information to our older emergency general surgery patients. For me, the biggest one is that having an emergency general surgery admission increases the risk of death and living in a nursing home, and that risk persists for at least five years after that admission. This decreases their mean time alive and at home by seven months. We tend to think of these admissions as being acute events, but clearly they have long-term implications for our patients and quality of life. I was pretty impressed by the fact that despite all this, most older adults do remain alive and in their home for several years following an emergency general surgery diagnosis. This is especially striking in the patients they identified as frail and whom 40% were still alive and at home one year post-admission. And after that, they returned to baseline level of risk. Yeah. And as we've highlighted, this was a very large study. The cohort selection was thoughtful and the controls were matched on a number of clinically important variables. The outcome was wonderfully patient-centered, and this is really the first study that I've seen looking at long-term outcomes, important outcomes in this patient population. So lots of strengths, um, but what about weaknesses? Okay, so I'm going to be a little negative again, but one issue is lumping together all patients over the age of 65. Of course, in medicine, age is only a number, but there are big differences between the average 65-year-old and 95-year-old. These differences probably have important implications on the likelihood of being alive and in your home five years later that don't get captured by lumping all study participants together. I felt really bad that we put you as the as the weaknesses part of this every time, Ashley. So I'm going to also criticize the study a little bit. Um, So along the same lines, frailty itself isn't binary. So the study reports it as you being frail or not. And they use the Johns Hopkins adjusted clinical group system, um, which looks at things like previous diagnosis of falls, urinary incontinence, et cetera, to determine whether or not a patient's frail. Uh, In this way, the database looks at your past medical history and classifies patients as frail or not. Uh, But this, of course, doesn't capture the true clinical impression of the treating surgeon. Uh, And as we all know from clinical experience, frailty is really more of a continuum. And therefore, we expect some degree of data loss and inaccuracy when we look at this problem in a dichotomous way. Yeah, those are are all good points. Um, This study will really help me next time I'm admitting a patient over the age of 65. I'd like to think I'll be able to give them long-term prognostic information so they know what to expect. However, I'm sure the patient will also want to know uh, whether or not they should have surgery. And more specifically, they'll want to know if having surgery will increase or decrease their likelihood of being alive and in their home in five years. The authors do report on on the patients who had surgery and their supplemental figures, but they don't directly compare those who did not undergo surgery. Thanks, Graham. Those are two great studies highlighting the importance of senior-specific outcomes, discussion, decision-making, and care, and the importance of high-volume emergency general surgery practices in caring for these patients. But we should talk about what has been tried and what works to help optimize patient care, for those who are frail or over 65 in the emergency general surgery setting. The American College of Surgeons has the geriatric surgery verification uh, as a quality program that's published optimal resources for geriatric surgery. It's available for free from their website. Uh, While focused on elective surgery, it outlines practices for setting goals and decision-making, including code status and events directives, return of patient sensory equipment, medication management, opioid sparing multimodal pain management, interdisciplinary care, and discharge planning. This is a great resource for anyone looking to implement quality improvements in the care of senior patients following surgery. The downside of large program intervention for these patients, of course, is cost and human resources. 
That sounds great, uh, Dr. Nato. I'll have to check it out. Um, there are several studies that have looked at interventions for surgical patients over 65, although again, most focused on elective surgery, including prehabilitation. And as we've discussed earlier, emergency general surgery doesn't often afford us the luxury of time. So we do need to focus on measures that can be implemented from the point of assessment in the emergency department admission and post-op. Luckily, there are a few studies that include interventions in emergency general surgery patients. There are only two that I know of that focus specifically on our patient population over 65. I think it's worth talking about these interventions to help give a sense of what we can all do in practice. Engelhart, for example, in 2018, did a before and after quality improvement study of all patients 65 and older admitted to their trauma and emergency general surgery service. They started by developing a frailty screening program, and then they, implement, they implemented a novel pathway uh, for those who were deemed frail. They used the Emergency General Surgery Frailty Index that we mentioned earlier. So their intervention included an interesting package of team, family, and uh, patient discussion of estimated length of stay and disposition, as well as a hospitalist consultation. They were able to get a palliative care consultation if it was needed, and they also uh, had early involvement of physical and occupational therapists. There's a specific order set focusing on delirium prevention and specific discharge follow-up they had arranged for all their patients. They found that the program resulted in a decreased length of stay and decreased loss of independence. They focused on shifting resources to the patients at most need instead of creating extra work, so they actually didn't need any additional resources for the program. This is pretty impressive and a great example of how we can improve the care of older emergency general surgery patients in a time when everyone is already overworked and short-staffed. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to see what can be accomplished in our patient population. Now, this study did include trauma patients as well. So why don't we talk about one other study that, uh, that also focuses on intervention, but this one's only for emergency general surgery patients over the age of 65. Yeah, absolutely. So Kataru et al. in 2020 uh, implemented the Elder-Friendly Approaches to the Surgical Environment, or EASE model. Uh, they focused on capacity realignment to cluster patients to a single unit, interdisciplinary care, including geriatric specialists, um, physical therapy and occupational therapy, pharmacists, dietitians, social workers, and, and they also implemented a standardized order set consistent with Enhanced re Recovery After Surgery, or ERAS, guidelines delirium prevention and comfort rounding, uh, self-administered patient exercises, and transition planning. So using this, they showed a reduction in post-operative morbidity, decreased length of stay, and decreased alternate level of care discharge. They only focused on operative patients, so we don't know if the same impact would be seen in the non-operative patients admitted to emergency general surgery teams, but the approach and the interventions really are impressive. I'm actually really fortunate to be consulting with Dr. Kataru right now to implement some of these interventions at my hospital. We're particularly interested in the self-administered patient exercises so that we can engage patients and avoid creating extra work for our already swamped interprofessional team. It's great to know that we can make changes to improve the outcomes and quality of life for emergency general surgery patients over 65. Yeah, it's amazing to see that there's such an emerging interest in care of older patients, and that we're starting to see it applied to emergency general surgery, which is so high risk for them in particular. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, on that note, let's wrap things up. And once again, why don't we see if we can come up with a game that can kind of hammer home some of the important points that we've been talking about. Now, for those keeping track at home, in our first episode, Dr. Ashley Nadler took home the inaugural Coley No Coley uh, game, but Dr. Jordan Nada tied it up last time by winning resect, bypass, divert, stent, or nothing. So today's game is going to be a spin-off on the classic Halloween game, Trick or Treat. 
Today's game is called Transfer Retreat, and in it, you're going to pretend that you're the general surgeon on call at a small rural hospital that does not possess tremendous expertise or high volumes in the care of geriatric emergency general surgeons, general surgery patients. So you have the option to treat the patient or to transfer them to a colleague or a center that has more uh, experience and expertise. How does that sound? Let's do it. I'm feeling strong. Sounds great. Okay, and as you know from before, the points are completely meaningless, and at the end, I'll arbitrarily award a winner who gets to say dominate the day. Yeah, like the MCAT. <laughs> okay, perfect. Okay, scenario number one is a 70-year-old female. She lives independently. She has a one-day history of right lower quadrant pain, and her imaging and physical examination are consistent with appendicitis. Dr. Nada, what do you want to do? I would say treat. Dr. Nadler? Also treat. Okay. Some agreement so far. Second scenario, a 65-year-old male on dual antiplatelet therapy with ECG changes and acute cholecystitis. Dr. Nada? I would transfer that patient. Dr. Nadler? Also transfer, either getting a senior colleague or a center that can help manage his uh, cardiac issues with a CCU. Okay, great. How about a 91-year-old male who's had progressive decline at home over the last six months, and now they present with uncomplicated diverticulitis? Dr. Nada? Depends a little on the goals of the family, but sticking with the, um, or the family and the patient, I should say, of course, um, but sticking with the nature of the game, I'm going to say transfer. And Dr. Nadler? Yeah, I completely agree. Goals of care are really important in this situation, uh, but transfer to make sure that they're getting the best care possible. Okay, scenario four, 86-year-old female who comes in with septic shock and has free air on x-ray. Dr. Nada? You know, it's one of those scenarios that, of course, dealing with a lot of um, discussions with colleagues in rural centers, it becomes a little complicated as far as what they're comfortable or able to do in that particular center. But, you know, if if I think that the patient can't make it to another center and we're able to treat them where I am, I'd say it's so urgent of a situation, I'd say treat. But if that's not possible, transfer. Dr. Nather? Jordan, you're turning into me with your I know, explanations sorry. <laughs> rather than answering the game. I'm yeah. going to treat the patients too sick. Okay, great. Scenario five, 74-year-old male who currently has supports at home for bathing, groceries, and cleaning, presents with a small bowel obstruction, and the plan is for initial trial of non-operative management. Dr. Nada? Uh, you know, I'm going to say treat. Dr. Nather? I'm going to treat, but have a low threshold to transfer. This patient is not improving with non-operative management. All right. Last scenario, 86-year-old male with hypertension and diabetes presents with a large bowel obstruction secondary to a sigmoid mass and has an incompetent ileocecal valve. Dr. Nada? I'm going to say transfer, assuming I can do it quickly and get that, uh, that patient's large bowel obstruction dealt with quick. Dr. Nadler? Yep, transfer. Um, like we said, transfer doesn't mean necessarily to another center, but if I have a senior partner that can help and has expertise in older patients in emergency general surgery, that would be ideal. Well, thanks for your answers. Unfortunately, you never disagreed with each other, so it's pretty much impossible for me to pick a winner. So I'm going to declare the very first ever emergency general surgery tie. So you'll have to say dominate the day together. All right. Dominate, Dominate the, day. the day. We blew it. <laughs> you had one job.
Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.